You're listening to a Cyberwire podcast from N2K Networks, powered by Dragos. It's Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023, and you're listening to Control Loop. In today's OT cybersecurity briefing, we look how hacktivists have targeted farm irrigation systems. Achieving maritime cybersecurity, JCDC and pre-ransomware notification, and a case of ransomware at Fincantieri Marinette Marine. Today's guest, Mike Hoffman, is technical leader for global services at Dragos and a SANS instructor. Mike will be discussing IT and OT misalignment. The Learning Lab has Dragos's Mark Urban, joined by Dragos's senior product manager, Jordan Wilkerson, to dig into ICS network visibility and monitoring, which is the third of the SANS Institute's five ICS cybersecurity critical controls. As part of Hashtag Op Israel, the anonymous-affiliated cyber action directed against Israel every April and intended mostly to support Palestinian interests, hacktivists turned again to water treatment and supply facilities. An attempt to disrupt a wastewater treatment facility was blocked by the facility's security systems, but the hacktivists had more success against poorly protected farm irrigation systems. CPO Magazine reports... The attackers had more luck with farms in the Jordan Valley, despite a seeming heads-up from Israel's National Cyber Directorate. Farms in the area that did not heed the call to temporarily disable remote connections had their automated irrigation systems disabled for a time, forcing them to switch to manual irrigation. Some security researchers believe that the farms that were hit were using default passwords, making it trivial for the attackers to walk in. Again, exposure to the Internet and lapses in basic digital hygiene can have outsized effects on automated systems. We've seen that the U.S. Transportation Security Administration has issued an emergency cybersecurity amendment for the security programs of airport and aircraft operators. Since then, the Cyberspace Solarium Commission 2.0 has published a report calling for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency to set up a maritime equipment testbed to enhance maritime cybersecurity, FedScoop reports. The report states, The program can begin by testing for cybersecurity vulnerabilities in foreign manufactured cranes used in U.S. ports, as mandated by the National Defense Authorization Act of the fiscal year 2023, and then expand into broader, systemically important maritime OT. CISA and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, Engineer Research and Development Center, last month released the Maritime Transportation System Resilience Assessment Guide. The guide focuses on physical, cyber, geographic, and logical resilience. CISA's Dr. David Mussington, Executive Assistant Director for Infrastructure Security, stated that the guide is integral to the development of a unified approach to address resilience indicators for port infrastructure systems and functions that assess the key dimensions of critical infrastructure in the maritime domain. 
Ransomware remains a matter of concern to U.S. cybersecurity officials. CISA's Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative is cultivating its pre-ransomware notification capability. JCDC stated, with pre-ransomware notifications, organizations can receive early warning and potentially evict threat actors before they can encrypt and hold critical data and systems for ransom. The JCDC is a public-private sector information-sharing organization established by CISA in 2021. JCDC Associate Director Clayton Romans explained in a blog post that pre-ransomware notifications are possible due to tips from the cybersecurity research community, infrastructure providers, and cyber threat intelligence companies about potential early-stage ransomware activity. Romans added that, Since the start of 2023, we've notified over 60 entities across the energy, healthcare, water and wastewater, education, and other sectors about potential pre-ransomware intrusions, and we've confirmed that many of them identified and remediated the intrusion before encryption or exfiltration occurred. The ransomware threat to industrial operations is neither idle nor trivial nor purely theoretical, And while ransomware is most familiar as a threat to business systems, that threat can affect industrial operations as well. In this case, however, the data affected involved industrial processes themselves. On April 12th, the Wisconsin shipyard of Fincantieri Marinette Marine, builders of the U.S. Navy's Freedom Class of Littoral Combat Ships and the Constellation Class Guided Missile Frigates, sustained a ransomware attack that disrupted shipyard operations. The U.S. Naval Institute News reported, The attack on Marinette Marine targeted servers that held data used to feed instructions to the shipyard's computer numerical control manufacturing machines, knocking them offline for several days. CNC-enabled machines are the backbone of modern manufacturing, taking specifications developed with design software and sending instructions to devices like welders, cutters, bending machines, and other computer-controlled tools. Fincantieri told the Naval Institute News that it had been working hard to remediate the problems, stating, Fincantieri Marine Group experienced a cybersecurity incident last week that is causing a temporary disruption to certain computer systems on its network. The company's network security officials immediately isolated systems and reported the incident to relevant agencies and partners. Fincantieri Marine Group brought in additional resources to investigate and to restore full functionality to the affected systems as quickly as possible. Operations had begun to approach restoration within a day of the attack, but the episode was disturbing and was closely monitored by the U.S. Navy. It wasn't immediately clear whether any data was stolen, but if temporary disruption of construction at a shipyard was the attacker's goal, then mission accomplished. The U.S. intelligence community sees Russian cyber operations devoting more effort toward disruption of supply chains supporting Ukraine. CyberScoop quotes NSA's Rob Joyce, the agency's director of cybersecurity, as saying that NSA is observing a significant amount of intelligence gathering into Western countries to include the U.S. in that logistics supply chain. A significant fraction of that supply chain carries humanitarian aid. And it's worth noting that the supply chains at risk here are physical supply chains that move material goods, not the software supply chains that have been much talked about. This sort of threat has been seen before, 
To place some of the potential effects in context, recall the way that NotPetya, a pseudo-ransomware campaign from 2017, encrypted systems at the shipping giant Maersk. The attackers continued their imposture enough to demand payment, but as it turned out, there was no way to decrypt the files. They were modified in ways that made them unrecoverable. Loss of these administrative systems resulted in loss of visibility into Maersk's containers, and the shipper had to revert to manual checking and manual management of the cargo it carried. This caused supply chain delays, particularly serious in time-sensitive shipments. So, reconnaissance should be taken seriously. A wise logistics organization will keep its shields up. Last week at the RSA conference in San Francisco, a community of private sector companies announced the formation of ETHOS, an acronym for Emerging Threat Open Sharing. ETHOS is intended to be an open-source, vendor-agnostic technology platform for sharing anonymous early warning threat information across industries with peers and governments. It's intended to function as a hotline across which early indications of threat activity can be shared. The 11 founding members of the Ethos community are 1898 and Company, ABS Group, Clarity, Dragos, Forescout, NetRise, Network Perception, Nozomi Networks, Schneider Electric, Tenable, and Waterfall Security. The initiative also has the support of CISA, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Eric Goldstein, Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at CISA, said, The scale and threats facing critical infrastructure operators, and in particular operational technology networks, requires an approach to information sharing grounded in collaboration and interoperability. CISA is eager to continue support for community-driven efforts, to reduce silos that impede timely and effective information sharing. We look forward to collaborating with such communities, including the Ethos community, to improve early warning and response to potential cyber threats, while appropriately protecting sensitive information about our nation's critical infrastructure community. Ethos is structured as a not-for-profit entity run by an independent mutual benefit corporation, At present, its technology resources can be found on GitHub. Our guest this week is Mike Hoffman, technical leader for global services at Dragos and a SANS instructor. Mike is discussing IT and OT misalignment. Mike, you and I have previously spoken about this notion of risk-based vulnerability management uh, within the OT space. And and today, I think we want to dig into that a little farther, uh, discuss the potential here for some IT and OT misalignment uh, that can take place. Can you make your case here? What exactly are we talking about here today? Yeah, it's this is a really really important topic, especially when we think about um, I'll, when I look at a lot of the larger organizations today. When they're you know people are still trying to figure out where OT fits and where and how IT can help can bring bring in from the uh, security standpoint and and really bring in their knowledge and their capability to help the OT space. And so a lot of different companies are still kind of going through this um, in a way that the identity crisis of, of uh, OT and IT working together. Um, 
one of the ways so that that we see this this alignment and or misalignment is around the, the discussion around vulnerability management from an IT perspective um, they have very very mature processes and capabilities in place where they go out and they have you know either using endpoints or vulnerability scanners and other tooling to go out and assess their landscape and then quickly you know determine and patch uh, come up with derogations when they can't and those kind of things to make make sure that their systems are fairly up to date with some of the latest uh, you know either OS or application patches and and they again very very solid workflows and processes the problem though is that in is that when we take that same mentality and we try to apply it to the OT side it things begin to fall apart we just can't go out and and take the same scanning capability or or dumping endpoint uh, you know uh, pieces of software on our machines and and to understand you know where we're where we're at and then go out and blanket apply these patches reboot our machines at nighttime all be good to go in the in the next day the, this same this this whole situation just doesn't quite copy over and and one of the challenges I see is that from the IT perspective is that this is their lever this is one of the main things that they deal with risk uh, a simplified term of risk of course is you know risk equals the vulnerability um, it, you know, and and we, when we think about that, the, the vulnerability and impacts and so forth, it, it's it's the, one of the ways that IT folks can lever or manage the risk is by uh, affecting vulnerabilities and or removing them. And so when we again when we take this and and we apply it to the OT side, the the challenges are is that some systems can be managed in this way. Um, we, when we think about systems in the DMZ and 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 others where a lot of those those don't have to continually be up and running for the plant our plants and systems to function. You can take a jump server as an example. You can patch it very very frequently, and you should. Um, and, and you can take a lot of these same processes. But when we go further down in the OT networks, um, you cannot this this recipe for you know mitigating and fixing vulnerabilities just begins to fall apart. And it's because of of the way our systems have been designed. Um, they're designed to function 24-7. Um, a lot of them haven't been really designed, and they're getting better, but they're, they don't have a lot of the capability or there's a, they're a lot more challenging to apply these patches. And plus, the patches really need to be tested and vetted really before. Um, so there's a lot of other things here that, yeah, it works, but but this this does, uh, it does bring up a quite a cultural clash, if you will, so... And how does this typically play out? I mean, is it does it get to the point of, of being almost adversarial, where the the OT people are saying no, you cannot do this, and the IT people are saying we must do this? Yeah, it, it, no, I mean it, it can be, um, but this is absolutely a time where it's it's a learning opportunity for both for the OT side to, to understand how you know to to help to automate some of it. Um, and and so this is where it's it's essentially and and I've I've sat through countless meetings um, from you know working with IT vulnerability teams uh, you know talking about you know the differences where where some things can overlap where we can have some alignment where they can help us out in some ways and we think of certain industries where they're actually doing vulnerability scanning and and I'm not advocating that you should go out and do this but in certain industries they're absolutely doing this and they're taking a lot of the best practice from from their IT counterparts. And doing scanning in certain areas of the network, 
And it works well for certain organizations. And I'm not saying that this works for every organization, but some it does. And so also um, understanding how, you know, from the IT side, um, making, you know, making sure that we can leverage things like WSUS servers or, or other, you know, components where we can get qualified patches coming down and trickling down into our environments, distribute them out. And again, use some, some of that automation there that the IT side is very, very comfortable with using. Again, though, a lot of times we can't leverage a lot of those the solutions fully. We can't go, you know, reboot our systems at night like IT can. But, but yeah, we can learn from each other. We can learn and, and learn the capabilities. We can uh, discuss the differences. Um, so we both ha- have that understanding. One of the things, too, is, is making sure that OT doesn't have the same KPIs as IT. OT is always going to have some systems that you know, don't, uh, haven't been patched or haven't been patched in quite a while. From the IT perspective, if, if they're tasked with keeping track of OT vulnerability management, they need to be aware and they need to be comfortable with some systems are going to be out of date. And that's just the way it is. And that's okay. But we also need to document other mitigations around them. Maybe we have, that's in a section of, of the internet or the network that's been you know, zoned off. We have additional you know, network monitoring out there. We have different uh, host-based monitoring. So we're doing other things that we try to protect, but yet we are still able to detect. Uh, so we have the detective measures around it. Vulnerability management is, is a holistic thing. It should be thought of in that way. Looking at, at the long timeline and, and acknowledging that, particularly on the OT side, you know, things can happen on a timeline of, of decades. Do you think there's an inevitable convergence here? I, I do. So, I mean, we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, so from a number of years ago, when you talked about, um, you know, to trying to bring in different technologies such as virtualization, uh, a lot of people would, would absolutely mock it. It's saying that my DCS, how, how dare you say that my SCADA or DCS would be virtualized? And now we're seeing that that's pretty common. And so I think a lot of different solutions and technologies are coming out to help us in this perspective of, of, of keeping our, our, our systems up more where we're seeing better usage of um, redundancy. Again, our systems have already, always been redundant for availability, but now we're looking at availability and redundancy from a patching perspective as well. There's also a lot of initiatives out there for um, the next version of what a DCS looks like, uh, the next version of, of those kind of things. And 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 some of that is, is going to more this containerized-based approach or making sure that we have systems that can be patched, um, you know, rebooted, uh, spun over to a backup system without taking a plant offline, uh, without taking that controller offline that's that's manipulating the plant process. So, so I, I think that as our systems, um, as, as we bring more of this technology here, there will be, um, you know, I, I think this will be easier. I still think that this is always going to be some sort of a challenge, um, especially when we think of discrete devices out there, that that there's always going to be that last endpoint device with firmware that you just can't, you know, you just can't make that latest update before you have that maintenance window. So is it going to get better? Sure. But are we always going to be able to, you know, are, are, is it totally going to converge where we have that same capability, that same rapid response? I don't think so. And I don't really think that that should be our goal either. 
Um, we're, we are always going to have systems that are designed in a certain way, uh, maybe not insecure by design, but yet there, there is, there's always something else. And, and when we think about vulnerability management, it, it's more than just patching. It's fixing a flaw or fixing a weakness. So if we can design our systems to design that weakness out or shut that weakness off, if we can shut off a port or a service on, on a system, that 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 will in in fact correct could correct that patch that we might not need to apply now. So we need to think about this as it's more than just applying a software patch or a piece of firmware. It's designing our systems out securely. It's making sure that we're building our system out in a defensible approach. So it, it's it's expanding our our views and our horizons beyond just thinking about fixing this weakness. In your experience with the folks that you've worked with with this, are, are there are there common elements, the organizations that are finding success here, who are navigating these things uh, successfully? Are, are there things that they have in common? I, I think so. And I think one of the, the most things that are in, in common are it's really working together. Um, and so when you, when you think about it, it's, it's leveraging the tool, the, the capability and the knowledge of, of both in, the engineering disciplines and also the IT security disciplines and, and those kind of things. So, um, we worked, we work best when we learn from each other and, and that's really the commonality. I, I think another one too is, is the mature organizations, um, a number of them, um, for better, or for worse, they've been, been regulated and so when we think about more, it's, it's they've been driven to a requirement. And I'm not saying regulation is good or bad, it, but it does, it, it does push that, that topic of we have to achieve the, this, these certain requirements, these certain levels. So a lot of the more mature, uh, you know, again, when I think about that, I think about, you know, North America electrical sector, where, where some of the NERC-SIP regulations have driven, it's driven people to a, this requirement of, you know, we have to do this in a certain amount of frequency and time, and and so it, it's it's driven by necessity, um, doing this in a much more efficient way, and and using a lot more our of our capabilities. But electrical sector aside, when I when I think about a lot of the companies that I've I've worked with, it's it's all about coming down, working together, leveraging best practices, and uh, and, and really learning from each other from that perspective. Our thanks to Mike Hoffman from Dragos for joining us. In this episode's Learning Lab... Dragos's Mark Urban is joined by Dragos Senior Product Manager Jordan Wilkerson to dig into ICS network visibility and monitoring. Hi, Mark Urban with another episode of Learning Lab here at Control Loop. I want to shift the attention to uh, one of the five ICS cybersecurity critical controls as put out by SANS. Number three of those controls is ICS network visibility and monitoring. So that's uh, definitely from SANS. The system 
the system of systems nature of the ICS drives a need for network monitoring to understand the interactions among those systems. ICS-specific monitoring includes the deep packet inspection of ICS protocols native to that environment, and it goes on. So I'm not going to read the entire description. That's from the SANS uh, white paper, um, the five ICS cybersecurity critical controls. I encourage you all to go and read that. In fact, I'll put the link for that in the show notes. But as we turn to network monitoring, this is an area that uh, is referenced in emerging rules and existing regulations or emerging regulations, existing regulations and frameworks. Uh, For instance, FERC directed uh, NERC to develop requirements for electrical utilities to implement internal network security monitoring or INSM. Uh, The TSA regulations for pipelines include requirements to provide continuous monitoring and detection. So the, this concept is is not a new one, and I think the, uh, the the SANS paper highlights it as a critical control. And I wanted to spend a couple episodes on that. And and the first of those episodes is focused really on on the the starting case, which is understanding kind of the systems within your environment, uh, sometimes known as asset inventory, or often known as asset inventory. And for that, I'm, I'm joined by Senior Product Manager Jordan Wilkinson here at Dragos. And Jordan works a lot with, uh, with uh, organizations, industrials focus on, uh, focused on security. Welcome, Jordan. Yeah, so first, uh, thank you so much for, for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. Um, so yeah, so when we're talking about building out an OT security program, there are generally four pillars that we discuss. Right. First and foremost, and, and I think the topic of this uh, conversation that we're going to have is around uh, visibility into your environment, right? Being able to identify a, what you have out of all of those things. What are the most critical, you know, assets in your environment? Um, and being able to evaluate sort of changes to that environment dynamically. So that's number one. And once you've established that uh, visibility, then the next step is, okay, well, out of all the things, uh, which of those are vulnerable and what vulnerabilities are on there with context around why they're important or not uh, within the context of my environment, right? So it's, it goes from visibility into viewing uh, vulnerabilities in the environment and how you're going to manage those. So we really just want to provide that transparency so that you can decide how you want to uh, view and manage context within your environment. Uh, the next is how do you then uh, continually improve the level of threat detection in the environment? Right? How do you see unauthorized traffic between IT and OT, as an example? Um, can you de- detect adversary behaviors? Right, And as new knowledge comes out in the ecosystem, how do you get that into your environment? And then, you know, event handling, right, as well, is something that's critical. So something happens, you see these things occurring in your environment, and how are you going to manage those and make sure that they're remediated, right? And so generally, just incident response, those kinds of things. Um, how can you operate uh, using whatever tools you have uh, to be able to manage those, those events? Gotcha. So, so visibility into assets, one, uh, you know, detect and manage vulnerabilities, two, threat detection, three, and then managing those incidents and events, number four, is kind of some of the foundational elements that, that you see. That's, that's, that's a great summary. Maybe we can take, and, and I think among those, I think we want to focus this discussion right now on that first one, especially visibility into assets or, you know, 
when you, when, you know, asset inventory, I think is, you know, probably a, one of the most common terms in this. Can you help us kind of understand that world? What is an asset inventory? Uh, and then maybe we'll go from there. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm a bit long winded. So, <laughs> so cut me off whenever you feel the need, but I'll try to get through this very quickly because, you know, I, I do think it is a general term that's used a lot, but I also think it's a bit subjective uh, based on the biases of whoever's answering the question, right? If I work for a vendor that provides X, Y, and Z data, of course, I'm going to tell you, you know, the answer is a platform that provides X, Y, and Z data, right? Um, <laughs> so I, I'm not going to do that. I want to I talk generically about this as I see it, right, in my interactions with customers and what they care about. So in my view, uh, an asset inventory is a dynamic repository of data about physical assets that are on and off your network in your OT environment. And they're what I'll call different categories of attributes, right? So I think about asset attributes in three general categories, and I can define them if you'd like. So it's basically the way I I think about it is they're direct attributes, uh, they're indirect corresponding attributes, and then customized attributes. So I do think it makes sense to kind of run through those, if that's cool with you. Yeah, absolutely. Understanding what you mean by those, I think, would be key. Sure. Yeah. So let's talk about their direct attributes first. So this is information about the devices themselves, what they, they physically are, right? What's their vendor, their make, their model, their type, their classification, et cetera. Um, information about what's running on those devices, potentially, right? The, like their operating system, different various configurations, network information, what's their MAC address, what's their IP, or if they don't have one, have they ever had one? And if so, what was it, right? Their last seen IP, that kind of thing. Also, where are they physically or logically in your network? And then, of course, you can go even further and say, you know, what additional software on these devices, et cetera. Then you have sort of the, the secondary category of attributes that I, that I call indirect corresponding attributes that people might snuff at that term. But these are things like, how are the assets behaving and communicating with one another? What are they talking to over what protocol? What is the directionality of those communications over what ports, et cetera, right? Um, And then, of course, just like we just mentioned, if there are vulnerabilities associated with those assets, those physical assets, what are they, right? Which ones have been identified and what's their severity and information about the um, the vulnerability that I, in my mind, I think of that as a discrete object, like a separate thing, but it's associated to an asset. So it's indirect. That's why I classify it like that. Likewise, you know, you have notifications or events that fire, right, in most uh, OT security platforms. And those are going to hit assets, right? Assets are what notifications fire because of a behavior change or something like that. And so you want those associations also there. And the last category is probably the easiest one, and that is uh, customized attributes. And that is basically anything that is input either by a software solution or uh, an actual person, right, who knows more detailed information that maybe you can't pick up on the wire, right? Like the criticality of an asset is subjective, right? It's Purdue level isn't something that inherently isn't going to be detected, Customized tags, customized attributes, things that are pertinent to you or your organization that help you identify and manage your environment. That's a good description, you know, kind of what they are. The second is kind of what they behave in other contexts about. And third is some, you know, 
additional information that really, you know, develops the profile of the specific asset. And that, that makes sense. And to your point, the asset is the primary kind of construct in OT security to focus on because a lot of things pivot off that, whether it's vulnerabilities or, you know, if there's an event that's typically tied to communication to or from an asset or the behavior of an asset. That, no, I, I like that. So, all right. Asset inventory with some characteristics, why it's important. Give us a flavor for some of the characteristics of developing an asset inventory and managing that over time. Like, what should people, you know, strive to do? What are some of the complications and things like that? Well, there's a couple things. So if you remember in the beginning of my sort of long-winded response, like, what is it, right? I mentioned that it's a dynamic repository. Right. That's the opposite of static. Right. It's ideally, hopefully, God willing, it's not an Excel document, <laughs> you know, which is, is just, it can happen. It, it, your, your environment's ever changing. Right. It's ever evolving. And so, um, you know, when, when, when I think about building one out, it has to be able to adapt and evolve over time and show the, the disparity between what you had before and what you have now. Right. And the fact that, um, you know, you want it to be a platform that's flexible, that respects your own knowledge, right? There's no software solution that generates information that is always going to get it right. And there's no vendor that's going to know your environment better than you do. And so the way I look at this is before I kind of get into the importance here, it's really about enabling you. It's augmenting your ability to say, do I agree with this or not? And have the ability to override is probably a harsh term, um, but agree or disagree with the data that you're seeing and be able to effectively modify that information so that it makes sense to you. So now getting into kind of the, and, and to do so without having to have the platform or whatever it is that you're working with to manage your asset inventory, then re-override what you just overwrote, <laughs> right? You don't want to wrestle with the solution. So why is this all important? Well, I think the general phrase that I'm sure everyone's going to cringe at when they hear it, because it said ad nauseum, is that you can't protect what you don't know about. Unfortunately, even though it's said all the time, it's true. So when it comes to securing anything, especially in an OT environment, you need to be able to make solid decisions. You need to be armed with critical information and as much information as possible and most importantly, you want context about that data. It could be about threats in your environment, about the vulnerabilities that you're seeing in the environment, et cetera. And ideally, you want a solution that's going to provide you guidance on what to do within the context of your environment when you see those things. I'm going to interrupt you and pull you off kind of the, kind of the outline you probably are looking at to, to track along. You, you mentioned a couple of things that, like you, you mentioned earlier in the discussion, that the IP address that you that you were last seen at, or you were saying that the inventory, you know, is a very dynamic thing that's not, you know, you don't want to manage off the Excel, Excel spreadsheet. Are the changes that dynamic in the environment? I mean, I thought these were like industrial, you know, static industrial systems that that don't change. You know, how you know, give us a little flavor for what you're talking about as far as the dynamic nature of kind of that environment. It changes all the time, right? IP addresses, just as a simple example, let's stick with that, right? IP and MAC addresses, address association in general. 
these things can bounce around all the time, right? And sometimes you'll have assets in your environment, particularly in OT, that are doing specific things, right? And they don't necessarily have to do those specific things all of the time. But just because they're not there doesn't mean you don't have to know about them. So when they go off network, you need to be able to know that they still exist. And you need to be able to reference historical notifications that have fired on those assets, even though they're not actively communicating at any given point. So if you're using dynamic address allocation and you have an asset that falls away, that IP could shift onto another asset. Right, so things can bounce around, and then you have switches and all other kinds of traditional networking stuff in, that gets mixed in there, and you've got all kinds of craziness that can happen. So you really just want to be able to actively understand the current state always first, but you still need the ability to reference sort of the historical, leg, let's call it legacy uh, view of your environment as well. The asset is probably still there, but it's not talking or it's been disconnected or it might be silent or it might have a different address even if it was active one week, three weeks later, it might be active, but under some different adjusting schemes. It's a dynamic nature because components turn on and off or, you know, are talking sometimes and not talking sometimes and switch, you know, IP addresses and, okay. That makes sense. That gives a little bit more insight into the dynamicism of that. And I, I imagine that you know some environments are much more dynamic and some might be a little bit more static, but you always want to keep on top of those, you know, the current state to your point, but also what have you seen in the past in case that factors in as well. Okay. hundred percent. Yep. Okay. So are there any other kind of complications that, that you work with, with kind of industrial organizations in kind of that asset inventory realm? Well, I think it's not anything that is sort of unique to my experience, I don't, I don't think. I think everybody that's in OT kind of wrestles with the same things. And one of those is just the primary difference between sort of traditional thinking of how you identify assets in general. You know, like in an IT environment, you can go and you can run active scans and get responses from all of those kinds of devices because they're meant to be seen, share data, etc. In an OT environment, that's not necessarily the case. In fact, like you can take down critical assets by running active scans in that environment. So you have to do this passively. And because you have to do that passively, meaning you're just picking up traffic on the wire and dissecting those packets and making them make sense to an end user somehow. You have to be really clever on where you're capturing that traffic. So the issues that I've seen uh, during my time at Dragos has really been uh, a couple things. One is uh, lack of protocol support, right? Because you're dealing in an environment that has many, many, many dozens, hundreds potentially of uh, proprietary protocols. And those protocols don't necessarily exist in every single industry, in every single kind of deployment, in every single OT environment. So you can have missed protocols where you're just mischaracterizing things. Maybe you don't support a protocol at all, so you don't see that traffic. It could also be that you know you have air-gapped or enclaved areas of the network that your sensor can't see into, right? Those kind of, that maybe somebody generically would expect to see. Those kinds of things are always difficult. Um, but, you know, the, the risk 
of just being able to actively go into an environment and scan everything and hit everything, just, you know, pump out like a big, a big old network scan is, is too dangerous uh, and too risky to, to do. So uh, that's the trade off there is that it, generally it's really around mischaracterization, directionality issues and lack of protocol support that I've seen are the, are the big ones. <laughs> or people saying like, Oh, where's this big set of stuff? And <laughs> why isn't that showing up? And then they're like, Always. oh yeah, it's that's that's an air gap. Oh, I forgot that's an air gap network. Okay, there's not to mention that the connections can be very low bandwidth, right? So, so it's you know that that also presents issues too. So, you know, these are geographically dispersed environments usually, and even if there are single sites, uh, they're they're complex, man. So, you know, it's, it's hard to to get all that stuff right all the time. You know, it's it's funny. I, we we the, the prior episode uh, we had Rob Leon talk about you know some of the differences in you know a little bit about convergence of OT and IT. But you know, you reminded me like these OT environments are like networking, you know, lands back in the '90s, right? That that's you know, if you're looking to an IT environment, you know, it's probably. 90%, you know, between HTTP and DNS, it's probably 90% of an IT network. And that's probably maybe a little bit extreme on the percentages, but an industrial networks, to your point, like the number of protocols and the diversity of communication types is just crazy. And, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, the devices are different, right? You're talking about, when you're talking about OT devices, you're talking about what PLCs and, you know, distributed control systems. And, SCADA's DCS, and yep. SCADA's HMI, DCS, right. plant controllers, you know, and manufacturing and, and all these things. And and their discussions that, you know, the, those, uh, you know, those secondary attributes they were talking about, about how they talk is just so completely different because these are often proprietary, you know, equipment OEM vendors with their proprietary protocols speaking proprietary commands and things like that, that don't look anything like, you know, HTTP access to Salesforce in the IT world. And, and it's, it's interesting that, you know, you talked a lot about the devices and I think you really hit on something that, you know, we, I just wanted to emphasize is just the incredible complexity and diversity of those discussions and the different nature of those devices in those environments. So, IT ain't OT and vice versa, you know, and I, I would, I would love to be able to like, you know, family feud it and be like, show me my OT inventory. Right. But it's not that easy. Uh, and I, you know, Steve Harvey is probably very expensive. Uh, it's not, it's not an easy thing. The, the good news though is that at every deployment we're learning, right. And every time that we go in and we find out, oh, we don't support X or, oh, or mischaracterizing something or what have you. We have mechanisms in place to be able to manage those things, right? Because this, this, this whole OT world is pretty good at like sort of general community defense. And so, you know, we, we feed off of each other and our knowledge base continues to grow so that let's just generic, genericize and say industry to industry over time, Similar deployments become easier. They never get easy, but they do get easier, right? Um, but it, but every environment is different. Every environment's super complex. Um, so it's definitely a, a challenge. 
Jordan Wilkerson, everybody. A little bit about asset inventories, managing all that communications. Jordan, thank you so much today. All right, thank you. And that's Control Loop, brought to you by the CyberWire and powered by Dragos. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at thecyberwire.com. Sound design for this show is done by Elliot Peltzman, with mixing by Trey Hester. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our Dragos producers are Joanne Roche and Mark Urban. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next time. We'll be right back.